So it's all about changing behavior, improving performance, improving culture and leadership. So it's the broad gamut of uh, applying behavioral science. So that's me in a nutshell. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. My guest today is Isaac Baker. He's an applied behavioral scientist working at Mappian. And we talk about decision making, how we make decisions, why we make decisions. His job in particular is about looking at behavior change and applying behavioral science to influence that, whether it be for businesses, corporations, or policy making. His job is to go out and assist with how we can motivate people or influence people, remove barriers to or encourage people to do certain behaviours. Really fascinating talking to Isaac and in particular towards the end of the interview speaking about coronavirus. It's quite interesting about just in actual fact how he talks about this idea of, you know, what's normal, what's expected within a context rather than going out and judging behaviour. You're going to love this episode. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming along to have a bit of a chat. Thank you very much, Nash. I appreciate the extending the invitation. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on at the, at the moment. Well, currently uh, in my role as a behavioral scientist and consultant at, at Mapian, um, I'm applying the behavioral science essentially to the workplace. Um, so understanding how and why we make decisions and behave and um, attempting to improve organizations in terms of their internal employees, um, their performance, their behaviors within the organization, as well as um, externally facing as well. So customers designing and implementing interventions and, and projects, initiatives that can drive desired um, customer behavior. So it's all about changing behavior, improving performance, improving culture and leadership. So it's the broad gamut of uh, applying behavioral science. So that's me in a nutshell. It's obviously fairly broad. Uh, how can listeners try and get an appreciation of what something might look like that you kind of work on? You know, what, what's the sort of behavioral change or influence or, or um, uh, engagement with how the environment works or how others communicate with others, whatever it might be that, that leads to um, changes? How, how, how does it all look and how does it all work? In particular, I'm an expert in applying behavioral insights. So this is a buzzword term, but I'll be able to break it down for you. Um, so behavioral insights is comprised of two components. One component is the science of how and why we make decisions. And the second component is the application of the behavioral science methodology to actually test interventions in the workplace or even out in the public. For instance, governments creating interventions and rolling out interventions to see whether a potential sort of behavioral change intervention or technique actually works in changing behavior. So they're the two components of behavioral insights. So applying the science of how and why we make decisions to change behaviors and understanding that science, that those research literatures. And then the second component is the methodology for actually testing it. It's importantly, at least in the past, is being relatively rare and restricted our application of behavioral science and importantly the um, experimentation side of things. So being able to run an actual study within organizations or even for our customers to see 
how effective is this change to a marketing campaign, let's say, compared to this other change that we implemented? And using this behavioral insights approach, we can, it's not guesswork essentially. So it's an educated guess in some sense where you're using the science to understand what tends to drive human behavior in a certain context. So let's look at consumer behavior. So what's driving people from actually purchasing this product as opposed to another product or even an alternative of that product? And by looking at the research literature, as well as the applied research literature, we can start to make it, get an idea of the key drivers and motivations and the nuance behind what drives certain behaviors. So in terms of buying a, a potential financial product, for instance, insurance, what's driving people to buy insurance? What are the processes that are going through their decision-making um, or behavioral pathway? What's going through their mind and what's affecting their, their decision-making process in buying this insurance versus not buying any insurance or even comparing two different types of insurance? And when we start to appreciate the drivers and even the barriers and psychologically what's going through their mind and they may have access to it or maybe they don't have access to this sort of uh, to these drivers as well as the context in which they make decisions and then we can start to say okay let's actually identify some interventions some techniques that we can use to actually encourage certain behaviors so we can remove barriers from either psychological barriers or contextual barriers to encourage a certain behavior or we can pull levers to really elicit and trigger certain motivations to encourage a certain behavior. So in the context of consumer behavior, again, those insurance products, what's, what sort of factors, because there's likely to be a few factors at play, it's never mainly, it's never, never just one factor, what sort of factors are at play driving me to want to buy insurance? Oftentimes it may be, it may be fear or peace of mind, how I view the future and um, the well-being of my family, my own interests, of course. So those factors are likely to um, interplay with one another to affect my ultimate decision saying, okay, I'm going to buy insurance. And then even then there's another, another stage of the process where, okay, what sort of insurance do I buy? How do I weigh up these different factors? Um, let's say on the website, what does this particular um, feature mean for me? What does this feature mean for me? And I guess trying to diagnose that whole behavioral process, um, that's a, a task for myself, my colleagues, and anyone looking to change behavior because we have to understand that whole context that the, our target group um, are, are experiencing going through. So that could be employees or customers, whoever it may be. Um, so that's a long-winded way of, sure. of that answer. But it's all about changing very specific behaviors, importantly. So with behavioral insights, we want to target a very specific behavior. So we're, look, we're looking at a specific target group or groups. And we're saying we're looking at them, let's say, clicking onto a certain web page. That could be how specific are we getting. Or maybe it's even people signing up for, a, for an initiative or um, engaging in some sort of survey. So those are very specific behaviors where we can measure it and capture that data and where we can actually implement, if there's resources and will, we can implement interventions to see in this one condition, this one group of people, they received a certain type of technique or intervention. So it could be a, a reminder, for instance, a reminder to do some task. And then in another intervention a group, or let's say the control group, they don't, they don't receive any reminders. 
So by comparing this to control group that don't receive anything compared to the intervention group that do receive a type of intervention. So here, the reminder, and that's that reminder is informed by what we know about human behavior. Then we can test, is there actually a difference in some particular outcome? And then from there, we start to scale those, those type of interventions throughout our own work um, and organizations. So in some sense, there is a hypothesis around how we think people will go out and decision make. Uh, there's also hypotheses around what we think might be a barrier, what we think might be a, a motivator, and that's tested at phase one, let's call that. Uh, uh, the measures of that, I'll ask you in a minute what, how, how we go about measuring that um, or how we even go about hypothesizing. But um, we go out and we measure it. We compare the two groups in, in a perfect uh, example um, and we would see if there's a, a, a difference between that. And let, let, let's say we're trying to improve um, prostate cancer screening um, for men above 50 or something. Uh, there might be you know, an initiative that sends out information to you know, men above 50 and it gives them information about a prostate um, and so on and so forth. And another one might be an initiative about saying, you know, being a, a more call to action about saying, call your doctor. You know, maybe it's two brochures. One's got a call to action. One's got just information and you compare the two groups. And, you know, hopefully you'd find a, a difference between the two, which at least starts pointing in the direction of if we want to influence men 50 and above to get their prostates checked, um, one might be superior to the other. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And we can actually quantify how superior a certain type of intervention is. So that's the real value, I think. And particularly in the business world, trying to quantify return on investment can be quite difficult because there's a very complex system. Many factors are at play for a particular outcome. So not one person or initiative can really claim that it drove some very important business outcome unless you create these sort of controlled natural controlled experiments or even natural experiments where we can say, okay, we control for most factors. And we importantly, we randomly, um, we randomly assign these different intervention groups, uh, interventions to, to groups. And that really tears apart the causality piece. So typically, if you don't have these sort of, like the, the bread and butter, the gold standard is the RCT, randomized control trial. And that's where we, um, we randomly assign typically a, intervention to a group of people and then given that randomization that essentially levels out the, the assumption that um, people differ on some potential behavior and when we randomly assign people to these different interventions then we can really say that it's because of this intervention that led to a certain degree of change in the behavior and when you go beyond even two groups so when you have a control group and you have, let's say, three intervention groups, where those three intervention groups receive different types of information, that's where you can actually compare all four of those groups to say that this is number one most effective, this is number two, three, four, and here's the degree to which um, they are effective relative to, to one another. And importantly, that can actually very easily be connected to return investment. So in the case of um, trying to make certain individuals, males above 50, aware of prostate cancer, sending out these reminders or sending out these say, pamphlets where the pamphlets differ in the type of content that it contains. You can measure some sort of outcome. Let's say the number of people, the number of males 
from each of those conditions, each of those groups, actually engage in the behavior that you're interested in. So let's say they respond to the, to the message or they actually attend an appointment. So by looking at that, you can actually have a nice quantifiable um, piece of evidence there to say that this intervention is this, this much more uh, effective than another one. And here's what's shown. It's shown in 20% of people or 20% more people actually turn up to these, um, to these sessions or to these appointments. And then of course that's related to uh, whatever downstream effects such as being able to um, be more com- or actually screening for the, the potential prostate cancer, for instance. Is it almost like with, for example, Facebook ads or it might be Google ads where they have uh, obviously in their design where you might be able to run the exact same ad content uh, uh, to a randomized population of specific demographics with changes in just the image, for example. So, you know, if you're trying to sell apples, um, one might be a bowl full of apples, another one might be, you know, a healthy couple walking on the beach uh, or what appears to be a healthy couple walking on the beach. Another one might be, you know, some sort of humorous take on, you know, um, an apple fighting with an orange or something. Um, And by virtue of those, um, I mean, obviously it would be much difficult to recognize how does someone go out and purchase apples um, on, or maybe they purchase them online or something. Uh, mm. There would be a hypothesis as to which one's right, but we don't actually completely know. We can only hypothesize. I mean, m- most of the way the world works is we go, oh, this would be a good idea or this would go out and motivate someone. You know, they are barriers or they're not barriers. We think something's going to work one way, but the evidence doesn't always prove, prove so. Um, in the example of Facebook, they do that some of that work for you, obviously at a very basic level. Well, in actual probably at an incredibly complex level, um, you know, with all the AI in the background. Is there something like that? I don't know if you, how, how um, well-versed you are in the Facebook or Google or whatever it is ads space. Well, yeah, in the digital space, they, this is A-B testing, right? This is the bread mother, yeah. really. You're doing it for or however many decades and yep that, that's what that's what they do and in terms of being able to be confident in a certain intervention with behavioral insights or just using behavioral science you, you can understand probabilistically how likely is this sort of intervention likely to work given what we know about human behavior and what we find attractive and appealing this sort of intervention as indicated by the, the previous research and literature it is likely to work but again, the whole process of testing it is to confirm in this particular context for these people, is it effective and to what degree is it effective? So there's always uncertainty, particularly applying these different interventions and, and techniques to different contexts. That's why you need to measure it. So the importance of that, we're not, it's not guesswork where we have a hunch, we're implementing it and not measuring it. Here, we're, we have a hunch, let's say it's informed by some previous research, or let's say it's completely novel. But now we actually go through the process of testing it and in a rigorous way, in an ideal world, of course, um, in a rigorous way where you can actually start to establish causality with those randomized controls um, and, and the interventions. However, not every single instance will, will, we, will we have the resources, the time and the will to do a nice RCT. So in those cases, we can always do pre and post type of measures um, Whatever we have at our disposal, we're, we're going to be limited by, by that. But 
at least in, as the gold standard, that's the, the pinnacle that we can go towards. If not, even if we can't measure any, uh, even if we can't look at pre and post, implementing some sort of intervention that's based off previous research is at least increasing the chance that something's likely to work above and beyond potentially your own suspicions. What do we know so far about how we make decisions? What, what, are, what are some of the sort of areas that we're like, you know, this is confirmed, we kind of know this, these are our human biases. What do we know to date? Well, that's a great question. That's a big one. Okay. So I think if, if I give a, a nice tangible framework for understanding decision-making, it, it'll be useful. So um, in, the in the psychological literature, we have dual architecture type of frameworks. Okay. So basically saying that there's this system and another system and they work together in some way. And when, when one system's at play, it leads to certain types of outcomes and behaviors. When another system's at play, it leads to another sort. So in the decision-making space, we can think of them in terms of uh, system one and system two. So this is Daniel Kahneman's type of, of um, work with, with diversity. Is that, from, is that thinking uh, fast and slow? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I highly recommend that book by, by Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And the thinking fast and slow corresponds to the two systems. So the system one is, um, uh, actually, I won't use the term. I was going to use the term reptilian brain. I've used it, but I'm, okay, I'll go with it. The reptilian brain. So this means, um, I guess, this type of system or, or brain, let's say, has been around for millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And you know, we have it in common with many other species. Right? That's why they call it the reptilian brain. And this allows us to really make decisions quickly and survive in our environment. And it served us very, very well, as well as all the other species of mammals, let's say, that have this sort of system, right? So it's very automatic. Um, it's about connecting the dots, making quick decisions, and impl uh, implementing heuristics, so mental shortcuts. Because, again, our brain is the, the product of, of evolution, just with all other species. So we have to understand our brain and its systems in terms of it evolving over time, millions, hundreds of millions of years. So that system one is allowing us to be really efficient with our time and resources and energy because you don't want to, we don't have the, firstly the computing power to be able to process every single piece of information. Otherwise, we would be paralyzed. We wouldn't be able to make a decision. Um, whereas our brain is being selected over time and designed um, to create an architecture that can make rapid decisions to allow us to survive and reproduce and ultimately pass on our DNA because those individuals that couldn't do that as well as others, um, they would perish and they wouldn't pass on their DNA. So that's a system one and that's served us very well. So a lot of our habits are at that system one. It's automated. We don't even have to think about it. So driving typical example is driving to work. If you've been driving for a while, then the process become automated and more or less, you don't need to think about every little thing that you're doing. Right? So would you relate to that? It's oh, absolutely, magic. absolutely. Sometimes you, yeah, sometimes I mean, even, yeah, even if the pot, you know, even if a possum goes out and jumps on the back uh, shed, and you hear a thud or a you know bang, you, your first thought is not it's a possum. It might be it's a robber. Someone's around. It's dangerous. You know what? What the hell is that? You know, there, there's fright as the first response. You know, it's, it's almost like a reptilian, if if we call it that, or the automated. Um, you know, quick response. 
Yeah. And that's being adaptive. So in terms of understanding our brain and these, and these systems, again, over time, evolution refines and refines and refines our brains to, to survive in certain niches or, or, or contexts. And so given that we evolved in Africa um, and we split from chimpanzees about seven or six to eight million years ago, we've evolved quite a bit since then. And in that meantime, our brains have increased um, substantially. And that's what's given rise to what we see today, our ability for culture and language and, and building the buildings that we, that, we, um, that we have, living in these huge societies. And then we compare that to the chimpanzees. Where they're still in the rainforest doing their thing. So in terms of that evolution over the last six to eight million years, those frontal lobes has, re- has really developed. Um, and the neocortex is what we refer to it as. And that neocortex can be seen as being pretty tightly related to that system two now. So the system two is the, provides us the cognitive ability and capacity to think about the future, whereas uh, most other species can't typically do that to the same degree that we can. So it allows us to reason those higher order cognitive abilities. Um, it's all about um, yes, mental processing speed and working memory, executive functioning. So being able to be flexible in terms of behaviors, being able to innovate. So all these different mental capacities have come online over that eight or so million years. And it's all about that top down thinking for system two. So being able to, and you would imagine that consciousness would have arisen during this period um, or to the degree that we have it compared to other animals. And like that top-down processing allows us to really think about our decision-making and, and to slow it down. So we can actually, I think a nice analogy may be the elephant and the rider. So the elephant is the reptilian brain or the system one, the quick thinking um, system. And then system two is the rider. So the rider doesn't always need to be controlling the elephant. Sometimes the elephant can do what it's doing because it's useful, right? It's adaptive. Uh, in certain instances, we may need to activate the rider, if you will, to be able to control and navigate and, I guess, regulate the, the behaviours and the driving influence of system system one. So it's not as if when one system's at play, the other one's not there at all. It's always um, how they interact in particular contexts, in particular situations. So let's say if we're walking down the street and we see a few people, and let's say we're walking down a dark alley, we see a few people, the system one can be, it is automatic in that we see these stimuli in the environment and maybe you feel a chill, we feel a little bit anxious, we have the amygdala firing and that fear, that fear response, it may lead to us engaging in certain behavior to avoid potential threats. So we don't have to think about, oh, I'm, not, I'm going to do a calculation, there's three of them, this is at this time, this is how likely it's going to be. We automatically can just act on that instinct. Whereas, so that can be advantageous in that situation. So we stereotype in, in that context. However, in other contexts, stereotyping may be disadvantageous because it leads to, to, to bad outcomes. And in those situations, we may need to instill our system two to take over from our automatic stereotyping and reactions and associations that we make to say, okay, what am I actually doing here? Am I making the right decision? So yeah, this applies in the workplace or even interacting with people, was I justified in, or am I justified in avoiding this person, let's say, because of some association that I make automatically.
And that's where system two can say, okay, hold on, let's slow down the, the thought process and let's think it through. And going back to insurance or buying insurance, that's when you want system two at play. You don't want system one at play where you're just using any cues in the environment without thoroughly thinking through the, the costs and benefits of your situation. Is there any research that goes out and talks about what ratios we think are at play generally? Is it different for different people? Um, does, it, does it change with um, training or education or anything like that? You know, how much, how much of system one is, is driving me um, and how much of system two, you know, am I the driver? That's a good question. So there's a, I guess there's a endeavor in psychology, let's say, where we can look at individual differences between people. So one side of psychology looks at the actual phenomenon itself. So let's say um, intelligence. They look at the construct of intelligence and try to understand what makes up intelligence. And then another field, well, in, in another side of the same, uh, a different side of the same coin can be the individual differences perspective. So we know that intelligence exists. Now, how do people differ in it? So what I've just described before, it was this, this side here. So what systems actually exist? What's the nature of, of why and how we make decisions and everything else? So in that particular case, it'll be highly contextual, the interplay between system one and two. And I think it's just even a useful metaphor. So in a particular situation, you have to get quite nuanced to understand, okay, what's happening in your brain and in the neural pathways, what's firing, what are you consciously aware of to, um, and, and how is that impacting some sort of downstream behavior or outcome? So using those type of metaphors or frameworks may not be as useful to understand that particular context because behavior is very contextual and it varies and it's very complex, of course. So there's that situation there. So in terms of the, the balance between the two systems, it will depend on, on the context. And as for how we differ, that's an interesting question as well because, of course, some people are going to have better executive functioning skills. So they'll be able to control and regulate their emotions better than others. So if we use the analogy or, or the metaphor of the elephant and the rider and the rider or the elephant can be thought of as the emotional volcano in some sense or the, the source of certain emotions and sometimes that can get out of line. And then some people are better at regulating from the top, in the top-down fashion those emotions, right? So in those particular people, they're going to be better at not having outbursts in meetings, let's say, and they're going to have better outcomes as a result of that downstream outcomes, whereas those people that have no uh, inhibitory control or low self-control, again, thought of as that system two type of process, then they're going to suffer the consequences potentially of when their emotions bubble up let's say they don't have the regulatory systems in place or they're not as effective in being able to temper and control those emotions in some sense the emotion or upset anger um uh feeling that there's injustice whatever it might be tends to draw on system one uh or, or shut down more of system two uh in, in, in that um, the more upset I am, the more likely I am to say something that, that I'll regret later. I'm not using my executive functioning as much. Um, mm. 
Uh, is that is that kind of the, the the space where emotion plays in 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 that space? I would say yeah. So, and just to, just just to ensure I'm I'm clear here uh, in my own explanations, yeah. There, there's always that interplay, right? And in every situation, there's always an interplay. And with emotions and like, the bottom up type of um, feelings of emotions and driving behavior, and then the top down re- regulation of it. Okay. Um, yeah. There's there's always that interplay, and again. Some people are going to be better at controlling that interplay and, and manifesting that interplay in terms of the actual display of behaviors. And I imagine there's different uh, uh, different genetic uh, or, or personality predispositions that you know one person's born with a um, a very active elephant, so to speak, and others have quite a placid elephant, and it might be a little bit easier to then regulate, or it appears easier to to regulate because um, you don't need as much executive functioning to, to um, uh, tame the wild um, elephant, so to speak. Yeah, I'll, I'll say so. Yeah, I'll say probably. So. Okay. So how does this play into, I, I suppose, how we might go about doing these things? I mean, I, I, I can think of biases for myself. Um, uh, and in some places, I think they serve me, but... Uh, Sometimes I might also be fooling myself. You know, if I if I look to go buy something, purchase something large, for example, my family home, I, I recall I, it took me. I think it was either ten or you know, myself and my wife, maybe ten or twelve months. Uh, but I know of so many couples that that go out and they start their journey of looking for a home, and um, you know, five weeks later, they've purchased their home. You know, and and, and likewise, if I'm going to purchase a car. Uh, I will go around and around and around and around, you know, trying to make all these assessments and, you know, sometimes it gets in the way and it might be that maybe I wanted a home earlier uh, or or maybe prices of homes went up, you know, and it didn't, it could cost me more than, than it could have. You know, what what, do we need to kind of appreciate how we work and, 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 and understand that depending on the context or do we run with it? Can I tame it more? What do I need to do? Yes. So that's an interesting case study as well in terms of how long it takes to actually buy a house. So I think it's important to recognize that we can separate in some sense the decision-making process that we undertake from the actual outcome of the decision. So sometimes, I think often, we look at the outcome of a decision and say that that decision was the right decision. Well, not necessarily. The decision-making, the decision-making process may have been actually robust and legitimate. So if you were to replicate that decision-making process, let's say, 100 times, then that would have led to, on average, better outcomes compared to some other process that was just informed by, by guesswork and, and not really thorough in, in some sense. So being able to appreciate that you know, the process can be distinct in some sense from the outcome but in some sense still related to it. So I could just flip a coin as my decision-making process and it leads to, leads to or at least associates with a good outcome. However, in the long run, when, when you replicate that process, is it going to oftentimes lead to that outcome? I would say no. So it's important to recognize that, yes, you still have to look at the outcome to say, is that good in some sense relative to the actual process that you've undertaken? So Again, in that particular instance, for, for those friends that have taken, say, only a month, in that particular case, let's say it worked out 
how the, that sort of underappreciation potentially or, or lack of diligence potentially, when you replicate it over many, many decisions, that could lead to, or it's likely to lead to worse outcomes than if you were to be quite robust and thorough with, with these decisions. And that's particularly important for these huge decisions that we make about houses. So we tend to, I think, um, find that people maybe assert more and they engage in more effort, they engage in more effort for very small, uh, impactful decisions. So let's say buying lunch, what am I going to, what what am I going to do for lunch? And they actually put a disproportionate amount of time and effort into thinking and processing that information to say, I want to buy lunch here. Compare it to buying a whole house, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions, and that's decades of your life that you're going to be investing in. And then you only take a certain amount of money. So we tend to undervalue the time and that, that process. So that's, that phenomenon is quite interesting in and of itself. And I think in terms of making better decisions. How do we explain that? Sorry, if you don't mind. How, how do we explain why we spend so much time, for example, on, you know, should I get pad thai um, or am I feeling like some Indian food or should it go out and, you know, get a different cuisine? Yes. But, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this house is really nice. I can envisage myself mm-hmm. living here. Um, you know, what do you think? Should we put in an offer? I think that that's a great question. And obviously so much research is being still being done on this, but I would say that we just don't have the appreciation for the scale and magnitude of that impact. So oftentimes it's prolonged and it's into the far future, right? I can't really feel and experience what it's going to be like, the impacts of this decision until how many years down the line. And also the magnitude of, let's say, the money that we're talking about. What does it really mean? What's the real difference between experiencing the emotions of and, and the drivers of $300,000 versus $10 now for, for, for lunch? So it's a, it's a temporal issue of what's here and now versus what's in the future. And I guess what we see as being the risks. Oftentimes we're blind to the risks and all we undervalue or even um, overvalue the risks. So I think being able to, our generally our, our lack of ability to really properly like align align our behaviours to to the actual objective risks, let's say, and those dollar amounts, that's the that's the problem, and I think that's what leads to this discrepancy that we see, at least one factor potential. Because I can see the reverse occurring as well, where I've actively really had to try hard in, for example, purchasing a printer. Because um, I could go out and spend hours in looking at the printer, the functions it has, the compatibility, um, you know, what what the uh, toner cartridges, you know, the consumables cost, et cetera, et cetera. Put it all into a spreadsheet. I could go round and round and round, um, and I've done so, um, uh, to go out and 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 save over the you know lifetime of the printer you know uh, $38 or something you know uh, but I could spend hours um, and, and clearly there's a loss in there but uh, that's my bias my, my bias is to pull something apart and I've had to kind of actively uh, use I suppose my executive functioning and say this does not make sense mm. just buy one um, yes. by, by the wrong one, so to speak. You know, I'm trying to get the outcome, as, as we say, by purchasing one blindly, um, which is against my normal heuristics, so to speak. 
Yeah, certainly. And I think in terms of making better decisions, creating rules, decision rules and stopping rules, like that's quite important, where you can say that after a certain amount of time of deliberation, I'm going to make a decision and let's say it'll be, I'll decide based off some metric or some, some variable that's important to me. So let's say price. So if I haven't made, made a decision by a certain point, I will choose the cheaper option. So creating those decision rules and those stopping rules, that can be quite informative. So yeah, giving yourself that time. And I think creating systems and plans and processes, like that that's key. So that will actually reduce the amount of effort, cognitive effort that you have to engage in um, when making a certain decision. So that can be applied to small decisions. And oftentimes, small decisions can, can be, where am I going to, to eat today? So if you, before the fact, if you say that money is the most important thing to me, you can use it as your rule or as your heuristic, your mental shortcut. And if you're happy with that, then to say that money is the most important thing, I want to be frugal, perfect. So when it comes to the decision of buying lunch, I'm going to implement that rule and say that I want to find the cheapest option. And that allows us to automate that process so that we don't have to overthink it. We don't waste time on that. Um, so in those particular instances, yes, we can do some planning in advance to say, this is what's going to inform my decision making and then implement that particular plan. Or we can actually rely upon heuristics in the moment. So we can look at restaurants that are, have the most people there. Okay, I'm going to use that heuristic and it's useful and you may not even be aware of it, but oh, you could be aware of it, of course. Um, because that's a cue of something, right? So that mental shortcut is useful because it's a cue that other people are buying it, they're interested in it, it must be good compared to another restaurant where there's no one there. So it, it sends signals, right? So using that shortcut and the signals that are sent from, from those two places, then that can inform our decision in that context. Whereas when it comes to exerting effort and energy, that system to the, the top-down, really robust thought process, assigning that for really impactful decisions and making that conscious decision that I'm going to, I guess, reallocate my effort and my intellect to those decisions. I think that's the, that's an adaptive way to go about things. So things that are unimportant to me in terms of, let's say the values that I have, they're, they're unimportant to me. I'm going to rely upon my heuristics, my mental shortcuts, um, just to save time. Right. And my own cognitive effort. Whereas something that's really important where I have a lot of money on the line or someone, my health is on the line. I'm going to activate in some sense or um, really turn online that, that system to top down thought processes. And in addition to that, implement some sort of decision-making process as well. Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to think hard about this, but there's the next stage is, okay, thinking hard about it. What does that process look like? And that's an all another, it's not a whole nother story, but it's the next story that you have to tackle. How are you going to actually weigh up the pros and cons of different options? What will be your, your process and strategy in making a decision that you yourself say that I value this decision? It's interesting because in so many ways I can see where, for example, social evidence um, you know, can be helpful or having a, a rule around, you know, might be something like, if I don't know, don't go the cheapest, don't go the most expensive, go mid-range. But I'm sure everyone who's selling, you know, computers or whatever it is, they know how I'm thinking. You know, they, they will give a cheap option as they often do. If you go to buy a vehicle or something, they'll give you the baseline, right? And then they'll have the mid one and they'll have the high, high one. And 
I suppose they're, they're queuing for all of us. You know, someone does want to come in and say, I, I, my heuristic or my rule is I'm, I'm the frugal, you know, buyer and, and I'm doing that. And someone says, no, I'm looking for, you know, uh, value for money and I believe value for money is the mid-range one. It's a little bit more, but I get all these other options and someone's kind of saying, mm. you know, for, for me, the rule is if you're going to do something, do it properly. You know, get the whole kit and caboodle. It, I'm, I'm assuming that this is how some things are designed or built or that, that's kind of how you assist with, with some of the clients that you work with. Is, is that kind of the stuff where you're trying to cater for not only for one outcome, but trying to cater for different people coming in and, and you know, with different, different designs, different, different uh, you know, makeups, so to speak. Yeah, certainly. And that, that interplay that you, that you outlined, like that's fascinating interplay where you have individuals with their own unique drivers and, and combination of, of, of values, let's say. And then you can also zoom out to the scale of hundreds of thousands of those individuals right and where they all vary in their values and everything else um, and then from from the perspective of helping out the the, the business or when they're trying to design and, and frame products it is very interesting interplay and at least in terms of my own work in helping in helping businesses with how they frame products and how they allow the processes um, the sales process let's say and the products to align with the values and needs of the customers like that's ideal because Applying behavioral insights is one thing, but you can apply in many different ways. So you can apply it without an ethical lens. Where all you want to do, and all you want to do, is sell a certain product or get people to do a certain behavior that may not be aligned with their values. So that's not ideal, and I wouldn't encourage that approach. And in terms of interventions that change the environment in which we make decisions or the choice architecture, nudges um, as a certain type of intervention. And when you're being unethical in the application of behavioral science and behavioral insights and these interventions, the word that they've we start to use is sludge. So we we intervent we implement an intervention or a design of a catalog or products, and it leads to behaviors that aren't aligned with the customer's needs and values. So that's sludging in some sense. Whereas the ethical application or the purported ethical application is where we have the nudge implemented where we try to align and identify the, the needs and the values of a particular segment and allow them, let's say, through our website to navigate a certain process where they can actually get the top rated or the most appropriate product for them. So a lot of that customer user experience and the customer perspective, and that's what a lot of businesses are trying to do, and particularly in the financial sector, where they're trying to align and identify these segments of the people at certain ages and certain uh, demographics, they're interested in certain things or they have certain values and they have certain um, particular contexts and circumstances. And as a result, we want to align them with a certain product, a product that's not maybe appropriate for someone who's of a different age or different sex, maybe. So yeah, that's definitely, I think, a big driver in the financial industry, let's say, but particularly marketing, communications, um, to varying degrees, that sort of incentive or structure is actually set up. And, and across businesses, you find a lot of businesses aren't as interested as uh, in aligning the values. Um, but oftentimes, they're not collecting the data on the customer values and, and motives and what they want. 
Yeah, it's interesting, and maybe I've got a bias because, obviously, being a psychologist, I, I would assume that the holy grail is to align with values. Um, that that if you meet a customer's values, at least if we talk about the long term, maybe not the bottom line, short term, but if we talk about long term, I'd assume that your your growth is going to be greater by continuing to meet. Uh, values because the at that point you're removing those barriers you're certainly creating lots of motivation um, it's going to be an easier transaction rather than uh, to incentivize someone to quickly purchase something that is against their value set you know that, that yeah. there may be that buyer's remorse or regret or whatever it might 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 be i, I assume that uh, uh marrying those two at least over the long term would, would be helpful, but maybe business doesn't always run that way, right? Yes, you know, sometimes they they um uh, they might argue that they need a shorter term um uh, uh, incentives for shareholders or whatever it might be to achieve certain things, so they can grow that way. Maybe I'm a bit naive in that space. In terms of what what you've outlined, I I advocate for, and I agree that in the long term, right? It's a little about the long term game because business is a long term it's not one decision in one one instance going the ethical route seems to be the best way so in a in an optimally functioning market that's the that's the best way um whereas it's all about what the business values in terms of the short term as well as the long term so let's say the bottom line is the most important to them that and let's say they're pretty short-sighted about it so they're short-sighted the bottom line is getting a sale they don't care about whether it aligns with people's values they want money so in that particular case it, it's successful. However, when you look at, since this is an iterated game over time, if they keep this up and the market becomes, the, the share, not the shareholders, the, the customers become aware of this organizational business, they have low values, they're just trying to sell products, it's not what we need. If they get discovered, then in the long term, that's detrimental for them, even though the short term payoff. Um, but that assumes, of course, that there's the, there's the dynamic in the market where people can actually identify and become aware of okay, this business is doing bad business, let's say. Whereas if you're if you have an organization that not only promotes their ability to align their customers' values with what they what they need and deliver that value, but over time, if that's I guess well known and established, then I think in that long time in that long term view is going to be beneficial. So it's all about the here and the now versus the in the long term. So it's an interesting balance. Green energy space has done some fairly innovative things about bringing in people's values. If I think about uh, maybe a subset uh, or, or a set of persons in particular, for example, technologists, you know, IT pe- people who love that, that, that space, there's a very strong connection with, uh, I suppose, how those persons as a group value green energy. And we, we've seen the rise of play, you know, companies like Tesla where mm-hmm. they can produce a car and, and ask for a premium, you know, some extra money. And as a matter of fact, even Tesla has been kind of blatantly um, uh, open about this of saying, we're going to make a very expensive car that's going to give us lots of profits to then make a lesser expensive but still very expensive car to then try and make a, a lesser expensive, more, more affordable. Uh, 
they're, they're, they're kind of saying we want you to buy into these value and they, they have, you know, people have spoken about it as a cult. Um, you know, and I've got to put my hand up. I'm, I'm a member. I'm a member of that cult. Unfortunately, not not a paying member. I wish I was, but uh, uh, I'm an ethical or, or a values or a innovation excitement sort of member. Uh, I like the idea of of what they're talking about, and that's a huge driver. And I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say it's the only driver too, because of oh, course, no. with a lot of these motivations, it's all about say individuals and how they balance it. So ultimately we could find in a certain demographic or group where the economic constraints that may overplay, that they may um, drive, let's say, certain behaviours over and above the values that they have. So even though values may be important and they, they, they wish they could do it, however, the economic constraints means that's likely to be driving their decisions. And again, in terms of what drives their decisions and their thought process, a lot of these factors here aren't being conscious, they're not consciously aware of it. They, they may not yet. So they may have that more implicit knowledge or that tacit knowledge, um, in those those type of drivers of, of their behaviour. But in, in any case, whatever level is that, um, it's, it's interesting how individuals do balance those those behaviours and are they in a particular context or circumstance where they can actually allow values to inform their decision making. That makes a lot of sense because I'm I'm assuming that a lot of the Silicon Valley folk, uh, the economic um, barrier might not be as, as as bigger issues because they tend to be quite young. Um, they tend to be on um, reasonable salaries, uh, and you know that would probably align with their values and a whole social network of of what it all means and and, and so on. There's a lot of moving factors uh, rather than you know um, the many of us that probably would like one, but there's there's certainly enough barriers in the way. To get us to hold back, and I think a really salient example as well is looking at in a different context, looking at cross countries. So the richer, comparing richer to poorer countries, and in poorer countries they tend to care less. Let me just say um, oh. about the environment, or at least it's it's manifested in less environmentally friendly behaviors. And and why is that? So they could actually, sorry, they should they could care about the environment and value it, but those economic constraints of yeah. I just need to eat. I just need to get by. They're going to take precedence over the values that they may have for the environment. And but interestingly, over time, you tend to find when countries get richer and those needs, those more basic needs, are catered for, then they start to have the opportunity to express the values in the environment and care more about it. So, when you find, let's say, we use the, the flawed but decent measure of GDP to look at the the trends of a country improving over time then we tend to find that they care about the environment and regulations and um, those sort of behaviours actually come online as well. Do you know much about how much government, for example, I know we've spoken a lot about business, but how much do government go out and uh, look at these spaces of, you know, behavioural science, informing policies, informing uh, not only that, funding, you know, if, if we talk about, you know, the Don't Litter campaign, uh, obviously, the the uptake is going to be really, really poor in a developing country. Uh, that obviously, as you say, the hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, they're on the lower ends, the, and and so who cares if I throw a bit of rubbish and I don't have any trust that anyone else won't either. Versus in Australia, where you know it's very frowned upon and so on and so forth. But we've also spent 
huge volume of, of, of money and resources and advertising and so on. How much is government, you know, approaching you guys, other guys? Did you have any idea with, with, with how do we do some of that policy making to, to be informed by, you know, behavioral science? Yes, more and more. So the first behavioral insights team that I'm aware of um, was created uh, in the UK government and that was in between, let's say, 2008, 2011, I feel, around that period. So that's where the Popular Science book Nudge was also released. So that's when it started to become quite popular, the application of this strand of behavioural science and applying it in not only the workplace, but in particular the governmental setting uh, to try to impact the the behaviours and the outcomes of the general public. So they created the Behavioural Insights team and using this particular, or the unit, so using this this team, um, they were able to implement large-scale RCTs to change um, the general public's behaviour on very particular behaviours. So a perfect example may be tax compliance. So are people paying the taxes? So they're able to change the actual content of letters that they send out. So those letters reminding people to pay their taxes and everything else. So they're able to create several different intervention groups as well as a control group, looking at tens of thousands of people and to see that in this particular condition where we called upon, let's say, the social norm to say that here's how you scored compared to your neighbours. So that was one group or intervention. Yeah. And they were able to look at the effectiveness of people that actually engage in the behaviour of paying the taxes for that group and then compare it to another group saying uh, maybe drawing upon some other sort of salience um, cue in their environment, let's say. So all these different interventions that they can uh, implement or even they may even within an intervention group they may layer these t- techniques. So they may, they may mention social norming as well as um, how much it may cost the government or, or their, the people around them if they don't do a certain behaviour. So that's two types of techniques they can implement within one intervention group. And so that's to change tax compliance, a very specific sort of behaviour. And from there, it's actually spread through governments around the world. So organisations... Uh, governmental organisations, they may even have embedded behavioural insights teams and units that are targeted at changing the behaviour of their um, of their regions, of their areas. So um, we could be looking at walking behaviours, for instance. So I believe it's the Victorian government and, and a unit or team within um, the government where they wanted to target the healthy walking behaviours of, of individuals. So let's say it's patients, let's say, and they can implement certain interventions or they may be reminders or calls to social norms or whatever it may be to try to change the activity levels of um, that particular group. So, yeah, all around the world, they're they're implementing or they're creating these teams and these units and they're running these large-scale RCTs looking at thousands or tens of thousands of people and we're seeing depending on the, the nudge and the context and everything else, it, of course, it varies. The, the effectiveness varies. However, you, you do tend to find that there are certain interventions or nudges that tend to be more, most most effective in, in certain situations. So let's say the social norming nudge typically is, is quite effective. So being able to say, here's how you compare to to your peers or people that people identify with. Like That's quite important and quite um, useful in increasing the probability that someone or people will engage in the desired behaviour. How do we do that at a uh, at a sh- shorter time frame? You, you've obviously uh, described 
how we might go and do RCTs or, you know, basically do the feedback loop to, to look at what research is telling us. In a situation like at present, as we're speaking, you know, coronavirus is a big um, topic at the moment. How would we go out and look at influencing behaviour change uh, that might be useful about whether it be um, hand washing or, um, you know, decision making about whether to go to work or not or even whether to go to the hospital and get checked or not? How do you do that at, that, at fast speed? I mean, what, what influences how we might do that without obviously an opportunity to do randomised controlled trials. Is, 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 are these previous RCTs helping us make informed decisions now? I would say yes. So those previous RCTs, again, it's the evidence base about the, the effectiveness of certain techniques. So if you can actually rank order certain techniques and find that in those contexts, it, it relates to, it's pretty similar to my context, then I'm going to choose the top three interventions and implement them. But when you say us, are you talking from the perspective of, let's say, the government or are you talking about individuals making better decisions maybe you can talk about both i i, I suppose um you know there's yeah. all, all of us are in that space at the moment not not leaving it up to government because we can easily point the finger and just say oh they're not doing good enough uh, but at the same time you know what am i doing as part of that picture as well so, so let's say that the weed can be an entity, right? It doesn't have to be government or business, but ultimately the we is an entity where we want to change a, a, a cohort's behavior. And without going the RCT route, we can do the, the AB testing or we can do the, the pre and post actually. That's a, that's a nice, a useful approach. And as long as you have again, the resources and the will to collect data on the current behavior now and then implement the, the technique or the intervention and, and then measure it after, that can be useful in saying, okay, here's what the level was before. I implemented a technique. Uh, here, here's where it is after. So at least in that particular sense, you're still collecting data. And you know, that could be time-consuming. Maybe it's not. But if you want to start to establish whether behaviors have actually been changed, you need to measure um, these, these outcomes. And um, also, I guess, as a, at a level that's not as high as that even, understanding what drives people's behavior. So that behavioral insights, that first component of um, what are some key drivers of behaviors and then and knowing that, okay, these interventions tend to leverage these sort of drivers, implementing those, and this is not an ideal situation and not measuring it, that could, if um, you're constrained by the situation, that's our best bet. Although that's a, that's a good bet, let's say. So it's an educated guess, I suppose, is what we're trying to. Exactly right. So, and, and a lot of these interventions that I talk of, when we're talking about, let's say, not running an RCT or even a pre-post and not even measuring outcomes, which is not ideal, but you can still stack and layer these different techniques when you do an action. So let's say the action is an email. So in, in the email, you can still layer these different techniques. So call upon this norm or this sort of call to action or pop in or, or tweak the design of the email in a certain way that's informed by previous research, just to try to maximize the input of the output, sorry, of how effective that email will be. So in terms of our day-to-day, that's where I see the use of um, these behavioral insights to be useful for business as usual activities, where you may not have the opportunity to measure outcomes. Ideally, you should. But if not, using that approach, the educated guesses, I think will be, oh, it's better than nothing. Or it's better than blind luck and, and get 
guessing. Is this how some of these, is, is this what can kind of explain some of the madness that goes on around, you know, uh, some reports? And I don't know how true this is, but it seems that a uh, fair, fair bit of this is floating around, the craziness around Australians running around buying toilet paper. You know, there's there's fear, which is a great driver. You know, it's fear around scarcity, I'm, I'm assuming, because I don't believe toilet paper goes out and cures uh, or, or treats uh, coronavirus whatsoever, but there's a fear of scarcity that it won't be available. And if I have to be at home for 14 days, in an incubation period, whatever it might be, you know, there, there's almost like a call to action. If you don't go right now, you're going to miss out. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost even norming. Other people are doing this. I, I, I better. Is this kind of how this madness goes on? And, and the fact that it's publicized, you know, I think I was just reading the other day, there's something like nine articles a day, you know, per paper that are going out talking about this, let alone, you know, the social media madness. Uh, yeah. Is this how this stuff, you know, kind of breathes like a wildfire type of scenario? Yeah, this whole this whole phenomenon is quite quite interesting. And how do you explain I, it? Oh, okay, that's a good question. So, <laughs> and here there are no there are no normative judgments coming from me. So, people a lot of people are saying this is madness, this is crazy. Well, I don't or, or even irrational. I don't necessarily I don't necessarily see it as irrational. So it's all about what you class as rational behavior. And I think even the, a lot of experts they're not viewing risk appropriately. And so, what little chances the the layman or the general public have in viewing risk in the appropriate behaviour. So for this, I'm not an expert on risk or probability. However, I can I can refer to Nassim Taleb. Definitely check him out. Um, Joe Norman as well. So they bash in Yanir Bemiam potentially. I can't quite recall that name, but in any case, um, they're complexity scientists and and they're experts in risk and probability, and they actually go against the the mainstream of economics where economics may be viewing risk or they may be viewing rationality and and irrationality in a certain way. Um, But that's all to say that when you have these sort of instances where we have the potential for exponential growth and we actually do see exponential growth in certain countries right? until we implement our interventions, our, our protocols to try to reduce the rate of growth. Um, in these instances where we have exponential growth, you need a certain type of behavioral response that differs in degree and type from the, a behavioral response to a phenomena where it's more linear or even static. So a lot of people that are equating um, corona to gun deaths or um, how many people die of this, that, or the other, they're getting it wrong because firstly, they're comparing the raw numbers and they firstly don't compare the raw numbers. And, and also they have those two different or three different cases. They have different variances. So in terms of distributions, how, how likely a particular event is, and that's really drawing upon the tails of those distributions. So that, I mean, that's the old normal distribution, the bell curve, in these rare events where we're seeing exponential growth, these are fat-tailed, they're called. So these are very, very rare events, and they should be treated differently from, let's say, gun deaths. So people saying there's more people killed of gun deaths than corona, at least at this stage, but they're two different phenomena where one is relatively static or linear in growth, potentially, and the other is, in many instances, exponential. And when we look at the exponential element, 
that means we, we tend to underestimate how serious these things can be. So erring on the side of caution is always what I prefer. So the precautionary principle and recognizing that we're not good at probabilities and forecasting in the future, particularly when it comes to exponential growth. That means we, we get hung up on the wrong numbers. So we may be looking at the number of cases per day, but what we should really looking at is the growth rate of new cases from one day to the next. So that growth rate is going to tell you how rapidly it's actually growing, right? And how much of an issue it is. When you when it's around one or, or less than one, between zero and one, that's when it's starting to the growth rate is starting to decrease. And that's a good thing. When you start to exceed one, that's when you start to see those that exponential type of curve. And that's not good because even if most people, let's say, in a certain age range, they aren't symptomatic or they aren't going to die or be affected adversely by it. Say, so I'm, I'm turning 30 this year. I'm, I'm relatively healthy. So in terms of the risk factors or of what we've found to, to predict negative outcomes, whatever it may be, I may not die from it. And my, my, risk is pro- my individual risk is probably pretty low. However, I can be a vector for spreading it because I can actually be asymptomatic and I can spread it to people that have a higher risk. Let's say the people that are 50 and above, that smoke, that, that are obese, I can transmit it in that way. So by people underestimating, I'm a, and I've come across many people, it's like I'm a young person. Most people that, that die are old. However, if you see yourself as a vector, so if you can affect it, you can pass it on and you're likely to pass it on because we're in contact with each other. We can easily pass it on to three or four people per day. It's all about breathing on people. Um, we underestimate how quickly these things can spread. So with people going out to buy toilet paper, yes, the toilet paper in particular is a, an odd occurrence. And I'm saying there's something that's path dependent about that. So one weird instance that got some media attention before you know it, it leads to everyone toilet paper. Whereas there's no, nothing to stop us from having the same sort of response to any other type of item. Let's say hand wash or um, hand sanitizers. Because rationally speaking, well, not even rationally speaking, if, if you think about I guess, the hype that can be spread through through the media, that's, that's going to affect people's own decision-making because they can see that there is going to be that shortage, right? And what can, if you know that a lot of other people are going to be going out there to buy it, would it be rational or irrational of you to not go out there and buy it? So let's say everyone else buys it, you're left with no toilet paper. Of course, you can probably borrow it from someone, but whatever it may be, you're left with that, that resource and that can apply to, to any resource. So that can quickly and at a literal exponential rate lead to people saying, I need to run to the store now and get some toilet paper or tissues or whatever it may be. So when people say that irrational, uh, I, don't, I don't tend to agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense because under these conditions, it's very much expected. As a matter of fact, by virtue of it happening, makes it expected because uh, that that that's the um, uh, the proof that it's occurred, and so therefore these conditions have caused you know it to happen in this way. What's interesting is talking about the the actual um, you know coronavirus and how we're applying, I suppose risk or if we call about it system one or system two, we tend to do a very quick system one, you know, evaluation, which doesn't go out and compare apples with apples. Uh, It's comparing apples with, with oranges and kind of saying, well, coronavirus isn't that serious because it's killed less people 
than X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't go out and think more deeply, thoughtful in a considered way of what's the number of, you know, well, what's the risk of infection and then the number of possibilities because that's exponential. You know, if, if 25 million people were um, infected, let's say mm-hmm. just Australia, uh, you know, a 2%, a 2.5% is an astronomical number um, versus, you know, gun deaths or whatever it might might be. We're not necessarily seeing the whole picture or even assigning value in the same way in our decision-making. And I'll actually say that system one here, though, is actually helping us and is driving us in a, in a different way, in a positive way. So system one is driving us with, with, a, with the fear um, and that's driving us to go out and, and, and buy things. So I think that's advantageous. And, and of course, it's all about degree of what behaviors we're, we're looking at. I think that system one automatic response is actually advantageous. And so that heuristic that we're using is useful. Whereas in our system two, I think even though you know, maybe I framed it system two as being good, again, if there's a faulty process and we can't rationally make, uh, make the appropriate decision, not going through the same the appropriate process, system two can be detrimental. And here, I think system two is being detrimental oftentimes for a lot of people that are saying, is this number, this number here, this number there, um, and then thinking any deeper. So I guess it's all about what you define that process as system yeah. one or two. That's, that's the question. Is, is that because when, if system two becomes rigid, uh, in some sense it starts acting um, in a way of, well, I just know, you know, I, uh, I've got this system, this is my rule, my rule is clever and smart, and so now I'm, I've converted in some sense my previous system to uh, algorithm and I've provided to system one and that's how I'm going to view the world. Yes, Can it yes. be kind of explained a little bit like that? I suppose that that's some of the relationship in between, between the two. Yeah. I, I like that explanation. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Look, I, I'd love to talk to you for, for, for another hour. Um, I'm just mindful of time and I know you've got, got, got some uh, engagements to, to, to go to. Um, uh, we'll have to make another time, Isaac, to, to continue talking about this. But uh, any last things that, that, that you want to um, add to the, at least to give you an option to, to um, you know, finish off the coronavirus um, conversation before we finish up? Sure. Okay, so recommendations, coronavirus. Uh, decrease contact with others, right? And because that's that's how these viruses are going to be spread. And so there's the, the public um, gathering points and, and huge venues where you're interacting with a lot of people on trains and buses. That's you know, how these things, the thing will be spread. Of course, wash your hands, all that type of hygiene and, and prepare. So you know, this is going to happen for months, right? So be, be mindful of your own impact on other people. So again, if you're healthy, then you can still spread it on. Well, that is, if you're not displaying symptoms and you're not going to die, you can still spread it on to other people. So we all have a responsibility to decrease contact with others when um, when necessary and where appropriate. You know, wash the hands, uh, buy whatever resources. Don't go over the board, of course, um, but buy whatever resources that that you need, with the view that you know, this thing could grow exponentially uh, over a, a matter of in weeks and then think about the next few months uh, so get your financial matters in order because again the economic system will be um, under strain so make these panic well, don't panic early but be mindful early before it, it really um, starts to accelerate and 
and you'll be left in the dark with, with no plan. So that's my recommendation. And as for, uh, would you like me to give you like a general farewell conclusion? As please well? do if you like, please do. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, um, well, thank, well, firstly, let me just thank you for inviting me on the, on the, on the podcast. And I hope that it's been informative for people. And, um, again, system one, allow our heuristics that we use mental shortcuts. It's useful most of the time. So don't think of them as, as bad. So it's useful. It saves us time. And system two, it can be useful as well for thoughtfully thinking through processes, but it doesn't mean that it's going to always be useful because we could have the wrong processes, the wrong method in place. And as for changing behavior, it's all about diagnosing the drivers and the barriers in the environment as well as the psychological drivers. And then using the psychological literature, the behavioral science literature to inform techniques and interventions to change that behavior. And when I talk about behavior, I mean very targeted behaviors, very specific behavior. Beautifully said. Lastly, how can people get in contact or find out more about, about you uh, before we um, you know, shut, shut down the, uh, 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 you know, the communications? <laughs> um, I, think, I think there's two ways. So feel free to follow me on um, Twitter, social underscore Intel 15, I believe it is. It's been a while since I actually looked at that the handle. And connect with me on LinkedIn, Isaac Baker. Um, PhD scholar, I believe it is. So feel free to connect and, and we can talk behavioral science. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Isaac. Appreciate you coming onto the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you